Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh, who I presume are not smoldering in the corner of the quad like the leaves outside of Charles's uh, bedroom. Whoa, that was. <laughs> or maybe haunting, you are haunting and uh, evocative. I wish I was smoldering like the leaves outside of Charles. I would totally go for that. You know what's funny is yesterday I was smoldering like the leaves outside the quad. And then I had to kind of like go to the gym. So I had to stop. But I was yesterday. I'm just not right now. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, that makes sense. I like that smoldering. What did you say? Evocative and what? Uh... I can't even remember. Haunting and evocative. Haunting kind of like and this, evocative. Kind of like this chapter we're about to talk about. Yeah, that's a perfect description of chapter five. So yeah, we are going to talk just about chapter five for a couple of reasons. One, because we are actually only recording two days after our last recording date. Uh, and secondly, just because it's a long chapter. But I think what we're going to be doing is probably focusing on just a chapter at a time the rest of the way through this book to give ourselves um, some room to burrow deeply um we don't want to bite off more than we can chew either time wise schedule wise but also just um we want to be able to give the book you know each chapter it's due attention uh, it's a really rich rich book and it's we don't want to skip over more than we more than we must so to speak so we're going like to talk about book, the book seems to pivot in this chapter mm-hmm. well that's a, that's actually what i was going to say is we get it's the beginning of the rest of the of the story, sort of. Yeah. We're kind of through this. I know there's an actual prologue, but the first four chapters, in a way, seem like set up like like prologue material um, for the rest of the story. And uh, there's a lot of themes being set up in those first four chapters that kind of uh, b- begin to, um, you know, 
whatever seeds were planted begin to you know begin to grow and flower in this chapter I think and, and that's one of the things I'm talking about when I say that it reads like a Victorian novel you know the sort of long slow lead up I mean think about it you know we we're at chapter five and now we feel like we're getting somewhere yeah right <laughs> well I, right. I you know I don't know that I think I think what the, one of the reasons it feels like that is because we're getting to we're beginning to get to a different place than we thought like the novel begins to change in right. a lot of ways in mm-hmm. the first it, it's it becomes less about you know we, we think we're going to get this book about about the adventures of Sebastian and Charles right 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 <laughs> and now and now all of a sudden we get this much more moody uh haunting as as you know to borrow Tim's word there um chapter that sets up something very different than I think it might have we might have felt like we were going to get and I uh, love how is this whole like the carefree days of youth are kind of behind us and they're they're both dealing with the fact in different ways that, that that's that's behind them and you get the sense as the other characters talk that this is just a normal part of growing up and this is the college experience and this is what young men do they go and they make a mess of things their freshman year and then they sort of you know get their heads on straight and finish up and and just thinking about um, where we are now culturally, uh, even when I was in college, I still feel like that was it. You kind of went and sowed a few wild oats, but by the end of it, you know, I, I remember all of my friends just getting to this point where it was like, well, we're too old to party. And we were like 21, you know what I'm talking about? Like you just, you got tired <laughs> yeah. of it and you were just ready to be a grown up. Yeah. Uh, but it just seems to me that we have prolonged this <laughs> college is no longer that place where we kind of wake up and say I'm ready to be a grown-up and almost is like we've just prolonged it to where now it's like maybe when I get to my 30s I'll have this my carefree youth is behind me it's just an observation I don't have anything to add to that well before we go any further anyway we should probably say thank you to some sponsors some people who are making this show popular of course we have uh, the sponsorship from our friends over at classical academic press who are behind the Scola Academy and uh, that is related to you, Tim. You are giving some, you're going to be uh, leading, I don't know, giving, leading, presenting, teaching. Teaching is probably the word we should go with. Now that I think of, uh, te- <laughs> teaching teaching uh, is probably the, the word we should go with. If you go with, if you keep saying a lot of words, like a thes- just thesaurus style, you're eventually going to come. Upon one. Yeah, you're going to stumble upon the obvious one. Yeah. So I just did it in front of thousands of, re- thousands of people <laughs> who are listening. So, um, if that says anything about the way that I write, then it's terrifying. Um, but if you have a ninth or 12th grade student that would benefit from an engaging seminar-style great books course while earning two high school credits, then the Scola Academy might be great for you, especially the classes that are taught by Tim McIntosh. Uh, Tim is offering four different high school great books courses live online next school year. So if you would like your high school students to have deep engagement with the great books and develop a love for the classics under the tutelage of a, of a professor as accomplished and eloquent and, I don't know, if I keep saying words, I'm going to come upon the perfect one. Uh, <laughs> a haunting and know, evocative great yeah, book experience. Haunting and evocative. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking for a haunting and evocative great book experience for your children, then maybe check out scolaacademy.com and look up Tim's classes. Um, so, yeah, thanks to Classical Academic Press and Scola Academy for uh, sponsoring this summer, sponsoring Close Reads this summer. But the Cersei Podcast Network is also brought to you 
this month during the month of June by our friends over at the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Of oh, course, right you probably know a little bit about them. Andrew Pudawa is a good friend of ours, and he will be speaking, giving a keynote talk at our conference in Austin this summer. Um, but IEW equips teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Uh, at IEW, it is their privilege to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. So please do go check out IEW at IEW.com. Check out their, uh, their poetry me memorization program, which um, they're really excited about. And Andrew's, Andrew Pudwell is going to be talking about poetry and memorization and the benefits of all that at our conference, which appropriately enough is themed a contemplation of memory. So he seemed like a, one of the you know, the appropriate people to speak at such a conference, given his studies on the topic. So thanks to IEW for sponsoring as well. His talk on um, memory that he gave at the end of the last Circe conference, it wasn't a keynote. It was kind of one of the breakouts. Oh, it was, it was exceptional. I'm really looking forward to his keynote. I think he's giving a similar talk, or at least along that, in that same vein, you know, um, for his keynote on, on uh, Friday. I think Friday, fr the Friday morning of the conference, I believe. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to hearing that. David, do you also want to mention my upcoming webinar that I've got going on at the uh, Cersei Institute? Oh, yeah, I want to hear about this. Yeah, you, well, you beat me to it. Oh, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> but if you want to take over, I can just pass the mic over. You can, you can take over this part. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, go ahead. Tell us about that. It's we're, we started a new series of monthly uh, webinars um, on how to teach fairy tales. So it's kind of like a close reads thing, but it's a it's a shorter story. You know, we did one on Cinderella. You're doing which one? Snow White. Snow White. We're gonna do Sleeping Beauty. We're gonna do all these classic fairy tales, and we're gonna look at you know how to teach them, how to approach them, the questions to ask, how to op unpack them for kids, all that kind of stuff. So. Can you give us a preview of what you're going to be doing? And can you tell us um, more about why you chose that particular story? Or did, were you given it? <laughs> no, I wasn't given it. I, was ch I chose it. Um, so this is going to be on June 28th. And I'm really excited about it because I think people have mostly figured out that fairy tales and those kind of myths and fairy tales and folk tales, uh, that's, that's a, a great, great love of mine. And um, so we will be talking about uh, Snow White. We'll be talking about how to read a fairy tale in general, like what are they and how do you make sense of them. We're going to talk about the gospel as fairy tale, which I think is a real key to understanding all stories. Uh, we'll be looking at the relationship between classical mythology and fairy tales. And I'm going to be talking um, about how not to teach a fairy tale as well because uh, whenever I talk about fairy tales and people get really excited with, with my analysis, uh, that question inevitably comes up, do I teach it like this to my children? So that so we'll be, we'll be wrestling with all of that. And I think people are going to be really excited to discover the depths in Snow White. <laughs> There's a lot to it. Yeah, the, and, and it's so much more than the 1930s Disney movie here. I think there was a thirties, although even that was much better than I think some people give it credit for personally. You know that uh, Tolkien and Lewis went to the movies to see the Disney version of Sleeping Beauty when it came out. <laughs> I did. I no. heard. Yes. Really. And they hated it. <laughs> Not yeah, yeah, surprisingly. But it might have been because the pictures were moving. I can't. Oh, oh, no, they both said something to the effect of, you know, well, I could appreciate the technical merit that went into the production, but it's not a fairy tale. 
Tolkien in particular was extremely disturbed by the buffoonishness of the dwarfs, as you can imagine. Uh, yeah, that's actually my biggest problem with it as well. Yeah, so I mean, they, they felt like... Uh, I mean, these are men who've devoted themselves to myth and fairy tales and, and fairy stories in general, and, and, and they just didn't like the Disneyfication of it. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. Well, But just the thought <laughs> of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien standing in line at the movies to watch this just tickles me beyond anything I can say. Uh, I'd like extra butter, and uh, do you have any of those... Uh, Jolly Ranchers no, that I could buy. No, you know what? C.S. Lewis is totally trying to sneak a pint into this children's movie. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably Just so. Right. Just JR. No one will notice. They, my guess is they probably didn't have to sneak them in. Probably not. Um, um well, speaking of avoiding Disneyfication, back to Brideshead Revisited. Um, chapter five. So, one thing I'd like to do before we dive in too far is kind of get a, uh, a hold of the cast of characters that we have run into uh, in these first five chapters. So let's see if we can kind of account for the main characters. We obviously have uh, Charles Ryder and Sebastian Flight. There are, there are protagonists. Um, Tim, can you kind of break down uh, his, how Sebastian's family, what, what all the different relationships are there for us? Okay, so the, it, probably the most important character going forward is Lady Marchmaid, the mother of uh, Sebastian. She is a devout Catholic. She has divorced her husband, or she and her husband went through a divorce. I don't know that she divorced her husband. Um, uh, there's also Lord Marchmaid, who is the kind of absent father who has moved to... It's Venice, right? He's in Venice. Um, and there is also, of course, Bridie, the Earl of Brideshead, who is the elder brother of Sebastian. And, excuse me, uh, Julia is the sister of Sebastian. Those are our main characters within the Brideshead family tree. I feel like I, I, oh, and we haven't really seen much of him, but uh, Julia's husband. No, she's not married. Rex. No, but she will be. Isn't it? Doesn't she marry Rex? Well, yes, she does. Yeah. So Rex is. Spoiler, I totally didn't remember that. That was her beau. Oh, really? You didn't remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I told you I remember that thing. That becomes, you know, the, this, one of the central. I don't want to say conflicts, but relationships of the whole story. You know, yes. it's interesting. I was thinking while I was reading this chapter, I've read this a couple times. It's been, it's been a few years, though. So I mean, like five years, um, <clears throat> at least. I can't remember exactly how many. But I realized that the character who I think of the most is not Sebastian or Charles. But when I think about this book, I think about Julia. Hmm. By far want, the most. Why do you think that is, David? I don't know exactly. Um, uh and I and I have some ideas, but I don't want to say them now because I, th- there'll be reasons that show up later. Right. Yes. She becomes a she becomes a much more crucial character, a central character. Yes. In the second half of the book, so I don't want to say anything now, but I find her uh, the most one of the most um, uh, just intriguing, uh, complex characters in the book. Um, so I you know I I like you know I like. I like how he, she gets introduced a bit at a time. Like there's this mystery about her. Sebastian's just all out there, but the rest of the family is there's this mystery about them. Like uh, Brideshead, his older brother, is like, you know, 
there's a, something archetypal about him, but we only get mm-hmm. him in bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Julia is like, first he sees her when he comes to visit Sebastian the one that one time, but he only sees her for like a fleeting moment, you know? And then he meets her a couple more times here and there and like gets to know her a little bit more at a time. But the whole family is like, there's this slow reveal about them, which keeps them yes. seeming mysterious for, yes. the re- for the reader, I, which I think is really, really interesting, really well done by, by Wa. And it's kind of fulfilling this worry that Sebastian has earlier on in the book that his family is going to steal Charles away from him. And Sebastian is maybe the primary character of the book next to Charles at the beginning. As he recedes, the family kind of steps to the fore and they kind of like kind of fill the fill his absence in Charles's world. Hmm. And of course, that fear kind of I don't want to say that it is that it is fulfilled or it's met or whatever, but it does come into play again in this chapter five because you know, as Sebastian's sure despondency is tied to his feeling that they're stealing him, stealing Charles away from him, whether or not that's actually true is up for debate. Angelina, I, I don't want to derail the cast of characters, David, maybe we can go on with that, but I'm curious because Angelina said that she's having a hard time remembering this book. And for me also, it's my second time reading it. I'm having such a hard time recalling the plot, it seems really, really new on second read, and I wonder, is there a reason why it's it's well, not coming to memory? I mean, I thought it was just time. It's been over 20 years since I've read it, but I remember almost nothing. Almost nothing. I didn't remember that Julia married Rex. I do not remember how the book ends. Hmm. What I remember is little the plot? snippets, though. <laughs> what is what, David? What is the plot, though? Well, I'm I, that's to me the reason why we're having such a hard time remembering is that the plot is so. It is not a plot book; it is a character book. Right, and I, I remember think... the characters, but I don't remember any of. Well, that's true of me like, too. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually been thinking about this idea a lot. That great, the greatest works of literature, and to a certain extent, other other art, other narrative based art forms like movies or whatever, uh, theater. Uh, they don't necessarily it doesn't really matter what happens they create like moments that we remember there's yes. something haunting and evocative about them right that uh that that they kind of linger with us that and that's one of the things that is evidence of a, of the greatest works um i don't know if you guys know uh who dennis johnson is um, oh he he just died yeah he just died yeah. last week um and he is a uh sort of renowned in certain circles you know, modern writer. He wrote a book called Tree of Smoke about Vietnam, which is many consider to be the the best Vietnam novel. Um, it's and it's very violent, as you'd expect. Um, but it's the kind of book that, like, when I was studying fiction writing in college, that you know, it's the kind of book that they make you read. I read it in yeah. independent study, and I don't remember anything about it. I, don't, I remember very little about the actual plot. I remember some sort of like cursory level, like theme things. But what I remember the most is certain moments. Like there's this moment, the book begins with this scene in the jungle where this young soldier is watching a monkey like kill another creature or something and then get shot or something to that effect. And it's violent and gory and it's like clearly a metaphor for everything else that's going to come in the book. But what I remember the most is just that tone, that mood. And I think that even in in a book like this where the plot is, you know, things are happening but it's not the most important thing right it's that tone and that mood and what it evokes that is that is most memorable 
David, I got to weigh in just very briefly on Dennis Johnson. My friend mm-hmm. Rick Levine, who mm-hmm. has wonderful taste in literature, he's a writer for the Weekly here in Eugene. He is a he. He loves Dennis Johnson, and he says he would pass out his short story, his book of short stories, Jesus' Son. Yeah, he said yeah. I would pass it out with the Bible. It's like mandatory reading for 21st century. Huh. Um, and he told me that Dennis Johnson converted to Christianity very late in his life, hmm. which I I can I don't know I'm that I knew say, that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know that it's true, but Rick was pretty confident about it when he asserted it. Hmm. Well, hmm. I mean, I don't even know Rick, but Rick said that. I just like people with authority. I, that's totally how I roll, and that's, that's good with me. Um, but I, I love, I love what you said, David, and I think it's totally true, um, and, and it fits in with a lot of the personal research I've done about the development of story and narrative. And, uh, you know, the whole idea that you have to have some original plot that carries the story through and that that's what draws us to the story is this, you know, is this what's going to happen next kind of feeling it's such a modern and new idea historically speaking you know it's just that's just not how storytelling was historically for the vast majority of human experience you know homer is working within well-established myths um shakespeare has no original um plot lines you know except for the tempest um the medieval same thing it, it, it's more about what are you going to do with these characters what moments are you going to give us uh, you know what new spin are you putting on an old on an old story, what 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 are you bringing to the forefront? What's going to be your particular emphasis? Um, what's going to be your innovation to this well-established story? Um, and and so I think that you saying that we're still reading modern books, which are supposed to be plot-heavy, right? The emphasis is supposed to be on that. If we're still reading them in this old way, which I think you're right, that's a that's a fascinating idea about how human beings relate to stories, and that it's much more about characters and moments. Hmm. Now, Angelina, I might quibble a little bit with what you just said. Okay. I mean, you, as well as anyone know, like Aristotle's Poetics is, it may not, it was not a book about novels. It was a book about plays. So maybe we need to kind of like curtail its influence and keep it outside of novels. But Aristotle's Poetics, for a tragedy, is a, is a plot story even more than it's a character story. And Aristotle would say, I mean, there's, there's not a real divorce between the two. But it seems like even, even as early as Aristotle, there's a pretty strong emphasis on the plot being the primary vehicle of the meaning of the story. I don't know that... I think a lot of this has to do with how we're defining things. I'm talking primarily in um, whether or not you're, you're, you're working within an established story or whether or not you're inventing something, something new. I mean, there always is an element of suspense and what's going to happen next. I mean, that's never entirely missing. I mean, part of the reason that these authors are right. putting twists on things and innovations, I mean, there is a certain suspense that comes from that. But... Um, it's one of the reasons that we can read these stories again and again is that it, the enjoyment, ultimately, whatever it is we're getting from these stories is not so closely related to what happens next that when you get to the end of that, you can't, you can't ever go back to it because, you know, what would the pleasure in that be? Which, you know, do, does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. That yeah. does make sense. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not suggesting that plot is not important. It, it is. I'm, ex- I'm suggesting something about... Um, you know, so so Homer 
the reason that they invoke the muse, right, is that they're saying this story does not originate with me. I did not make this up, right? This is this is mm. something that's being given to me. I'm the receiver of it. And I'm now passing it on to you. In the Middle Ages, they did the exact same thing. They start the stories off not with an invocation of the muse, but with saying, I've heard this story. You've probably heard this story. This story has been written down. But again, the idea is that they're rooting the story outside of themselves. This changes when you get to the novel, hence the name novel, meaning new, and now it's a new story that's never been told before and that originates in me. And that's closely related to the romantic idea of, of the role of the poet and how he's giving you this truth. But the truth now comes from within me not from yes. outside me. So that those are the distinctions I'm sort of working with here very slowly. Yeah, that makes in sense. This conversation. Like 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 James Joyce writes near the end of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, I will reforge the conscience of my race within the smithy in the smithy of my soul or I will reforge the conscience of my people anyway. Yes. A very romantic right. notion. I from the smithy, the bellows, the anvil within me. I will craft a kind of new narrative. And that's, that's very, it's funny coming from someone like Joyce who was, um, who borrowed the, you know, one of the world's famous plots to make his most famous book. But still there is this notion of like the romantic self will triumph. It's not, it's not, we allude to the past in our writing but really the work of the artist is to forge something yes. novel, to forge something yes, new. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, point, point well absolutely. made. Um, you know, uh, you know who Matthew Weiner is, either of no. you? Wait, no, he's, he's that the, critic, right? The Mad Men critic? Well, he, no, he's the creator of Mad creator Men. Creator of Mad Men, okay, sorry. And he, he works on some other shows too. But so he, yeah, so he is the, um, the critic you're thinking of is named Matt, Matt Zoller Sites. Yes. But the, um, the, the the creator of Mad Men, he was asked about why they made certain choices throughout the, the run of their show. And, and you know, TV for a long time has kind of been, um, especially as serialized shows came along where, you know, one episode would lead into the next, which was, of course, that was something that wasn't as big in, early on in, in the history of TV. But as that kind of took took cold, people began to have these complex plots and it was all about one thing leading to the next and so he didn't really do that and and sometimes people would say well it feels like you're kind of being repetitive like the characters keep doing the same things or didn't we just rehash the same idea or something like that and he said well you know that's how more that's more like how our lives are our lives are rarely like you know a beginning a middle and end <laughs> the way i mean they are but they don't you know right. the, our lives aren't a se- series of plots they're a series mm-hmm. of moments that that you know feed into one another and affect the next moment and all that but you know rising action and falling action is is um our our actual lives are a lot more complex than that usually and so he talked about how when he was making that show for him it was about trying to create moments that felt true to life that he was he felt he was following characters he wasn't trying to like fit characters into a plot he was saying these are the characters that I'm getting to know, and this is where they're taking us. And, and everything that I do, every bit of the world that I create around them has to be, help, help us get to know those characters and allow, allow us to follow them rather than telling them, you know, this is where you're going to go. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why a show like that has as many fans as it does. And again, we don't really think about the, the plot of a show like that or, or a lot of movies right. like that. We think about the moments. We think about, like, 
these evocative, often evocative and haunting moments, right? I mean, I, I, those were good. That's a, those were good uh, word choices there, Tim. And you didn't even have to go through a whole list of them. You just said them right <laughs> off the top of your. Um, <clears throat> you're sitting there with a thesaurus, though. It's all right. That's true. Thumbing through my thesaurus. Not the same sort of thing that you just described happening in Mad Men happens in one of my favorite shows, The Wire. Viewer yeah, discretion yeah, sure. is advised. Yeah, for both um, those shows, probably. In The Wire, they they develop some of the most riveting characters I've ever seen on a screen. Stringer Bell. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness, what a character! And they kill him. They kill him in season two of five. You're just on and a they, spoiler roll today, man. I know. Actually, you know what, David? I'm just assuming that like our readers are not, or our listeners are not going to watch The Wire. I shouldn't assume that. Wow. It's just I don't, they don't need to way, watch it with their kids. I don't think it's season two that they kill Stringer. Oh, I thought it was season two. I think it's later when it's they kill early. Stringer. It's early. What but... even worse than a spoiler? A wrong spoiler. I mean, you're just killing <laughs> TV over here. Well, they really do kill. They kill key characters like at any given time. I mean. Oh yeah. Yeah. David, not... maybe you should cut that out. Now I feel yeah, kind of bad because like I'm like everyone who dies in order on Game of Thrones. Just go for it. Oh, okay. Did you know that? I don't, I've never seen. Neither have I, but I know a I lot of people die. Did die. you hear? Did you hear that the throne gets killed? <laughs> what? That explains um, a lot. <laughs> that's why there's a game. I don't. I don't know. Um, <laughs> It's true though. The Wire is like that, and a lot of—I mean, a lot of the greatest films of all time, like, have very little to do with the actual plot, like what mm. happens, so much as uh, why it happens and how it happens. Um, but let's let's jump over to to this chapter. There's a lot to talk about in this chapter, but I think there's a couple of themes in particular that we should focus in on. Do um, do either of you have a passage that really stood out in this chapter? That's uh, in chapters that are this long, I figure let's, you know, take a couple passages that we really love and see if we can just kind of follow them where they take us, you know, to keeping, keeping with the theme of the last 10 minutes conversation. David, I've got a passage, but my passage occurs relatively late in the chapter, and it feels like it's almost the culmination of the chapter. So I wonder, Andrew, if, if either of you have something that happens a little bit earlier. My passage begins on page 138 and goes through 140. Is it the Lady Marchman conversation? Yeah. Well, it's it's um, it's not the conversation with Lady Marchman, but it's Charles's thoughts on reading the book that Lady oh, Marchman and, gave Oh, him. yeah, that was good. I marked up that one, too. That's a good one. I want to talk about yeah. that for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, but it might be good to do something earlier. All right, well, I've got something a little earlier. A little um, when um, on 127 in my book, and I think we have the same page numbers, um, David, um, this is when... Uh, Charles is is reflecting on the religion and the family and that it doesn't seem to be having a, a very strong effect on him. And he's having a conversation with Lady Marchmain, uh, which, uh, it's just, uh, she's speaking my language, y'all. Scraps of con... What is the Okay, start let's with? start with on 126, Scraps of Conversation. Okay. Um, this is right after he has said religion predominated in the house. Yes. He's there for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how it starts. Religion predominated the house, not only in its practices, the daily mass and rosary, morning and evening in the chapel, chapel but in all its intercourse. We must make a Catholic of Charles, Lady Marchmain is saying. Okay, so skipping down then. Um, Scraps of conversation come back to me with the memory of her room. I remember her saying, when I was a girl, we were comparatively poor, but still much richer than most of the world. 
And when I married, I became very rich. It used to worry me, and I thought it nothing to have so many beautiful things when others had nothing. I'm sorry, I thought it wrong. I thought it wrong to have so many beautiful things when others had nothing. Now I realize that it is possible for the rich to sin by coveting the privileges of the poor. The poor have always been the favorites of God and his saints, but I believe that it is one of the special achievements of grace to sanctify the whole of life, riches included. Wealth in pagan Rome was necessarily something cruel. It's not anymore. I said something about a camel in the eye of a needle, and she rose happily to the point. But of course, she said, it's very unexpected for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But the gospel is simply a catalog of unexpected things. It's not to be expected that an ox and an ass should worship at the crib. Animals are always doing the oddest things in the lives of the saints. It's all part of the poetry, the Alice in Wonderland side of religion. But I was as untouched by her faith as I was by her charm, or rather, I was touched by both alike. I had no mind then for anything except Sebastian, and I saw him already as being threatened, though I did not yet know how black was the threat. His constant despairing prayer was to be let alone. By the blue waters and rustling palm of his own mind he was happy and harmless as a Polynesian. Only when the big ship dropped anchor beyond the coral reef and the cutter beached in the lagoon, and up the golden slope that had never known the print of a boot, there trod the grim invasion of a traitor, administrator, missionary, and tourist. Only then was it time to disinter the archaic weapons of the tribe and sound the drums in the hills, or more easily, to turn from the sunlit door and lie alone in the darkness where the impotent painted deities paraded the walls in vain and cough his heart out among the rum bottles. And since Sebastian counted among the intruders his own conscience and all claims of human affection, his days in Arcadia were numbered. Oh, I really liked that whole thing. Yeah, when I was reading that, I was fascinated by the way he goes, I'm not, not surprised, mind you, just fascinated, by the way he goes from this kind of like, philosophical idea and like getting kind of getting trying to get in Sebastian's head and all that but then he does that by this really rich metaphor he he shows like he gives us a picture that reveals what he's trying to explain in a way that just saying it or saying it you know in regular old words you know (laughs) could never do um that and and it's a really kind of strange metaphor it mm. is. Like it feels, it doesn't feel of a kind, like a kind with the rest of the book or the place they're in and all that. It's like this very um, uh, foreign, exotic thing that he's describing. And it's kind of wild at the same time. Like it just gives you so much insight into what's into who Sebastian is um, beyond just what's going on in his head, but to, to who he is. Mm-hmm. And, and like what, and like how we can think about him, like represents him. And I want to make sure too. Help me, you guys. What metaphor? What metaphor are you guys talking about? Well, it almost is like he's one of these, like you know, untouched native islanders, and we're about to okay, yeah. upon that. Image. Yeah, it's like an epic simile, actually. Either as it's it's what's hard about this passage for me, and I think it's beautiful. But what's hard about it is it's Charles reflecting back on these scraps of conversation that came back to him, um, mainly with his conversation with Lady Marchmaid. And he's also reflecting back on, it's hard to position if this is Charles's um, kind of like 
older self reflecting back on how he views Catholicism's threat to Sebastian, or if it's Charles in that moment imagining what Catholicism's threat to Sebastian is. Do you understand what I'm right. what I'm trying to get at? I just assume everything is older Charles. You know, I had no mind then. You know, the way he talks. Yeah. But but it's hard for me, help me you guys. It's hard for me to reconcile that vision of Catholicism cuz it's it's an imperialistic vision. It's imp- like it's threatening it's encroaching which, which, upon which Sebastian's vision? The vision of... Um, I did not read it as religion being the threat to Sebastian, though. Let me read the paragraph that I'm talking about, just to make sure we're on the same page. But I was as untouched by her faith as I was by her charm, or rather, I was touched by both alike. I had no mind then for anything except Sebastian, and I saw him as already being threatened, though I did not yet know how black was the threat. I'm taking that threat... That threat is either... I take it to be her... Oh, see, I did not read it that way at all. How do you read like it, Angelina? Like life, growing up, everything, his innocence is being threatened by just the weight of everything. But you can't huh. stay in that place. So you, so, you know, you said earlier something about like the, the whole like getting older and you can't party anymore and the weight of getting, of growing up and all that. So that's where you, that's where you read his despair coming from no i think his despair is extremely complicated i I think it's more than just growing i think he's got a lot of issues with his family um what do you guys make of the whole the whole question about the the whether he is um how does he put it he says that this the scientists say there's something chemical oh that was also a great passage and and he Hmm. says i don't think there was anything chemical wrong with him um do, do you, is that is that Charles and Wah asking us to dismiss the you know any kind of like oh he has this mental issue or whatever like are we, is that basically just him telling us don't even think about that yeah I, that's the way I, I read it I think he's having a spiritual this issue. has to be addressed I agree totally he agree. doesn't want he doesn't want us coming to it with like our Sigmund Freud on the side or like right. and that again echoing Flannery O'Connor right don't give this some psychoanalytical reading. This is a spiritual... Yeah, or barrier twain, yeah. Right, right. You see, and, and of course what stood out for me was, again, this, this idea that Lady Marchmain brings forth through just rejecting this modern view of religion, right? Because she's talking about this is the poetry of religion. This is the Alice in Wonderland side of religion. Which goes back to what we talked right. about last time, the idea of like the, of that aesthetic theology that... that as and Tim the enchantment said it, the idea of, it. of Loving something for it being lovely. And the enchantment of it. And that yeah. it's... it's she says essentially the faith is a paradox and we should ex- expect to see paradoxes you know the lion and the lamb lying down there's a paradox at the heart of mm-hmm. you die to live which that's always been what's like fascinated you, me about religion is the paradox at the heart of it i like that you use the word enchanted because in a sense what edward i mean what charles could have said there is but i was you know he says i was untouched by her by her faith and her, as and her charms and mm-hmm. like that it could have been something like you know i was unconvinced um, right well but uh, what's what's a word that goes more with with enchanted oh. with enchantment um like if you think in terms of magic or something like that i was on i mean i was unenchanted i guess there was a word i had in my head and i lost oh. it if i keep talking eventually maybe it'll come back <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but I was thinking, you know, oh, like a, there's a spell. Like he hasn't, like the, the there's been no, you know he the spell doesn't ring true for him. Like he do, he's not been cast by that spell. Um, yet, yet, and I think one of the things about the book is that in a way, Sebastian, that spell does linger over him, and he's yes. the, dis, the despair is is you know that in a sense he both wants that's to you know he wants to feel that that enchantment he wants but he at the same time he doesn't and so there's he doesn't also at the same time yeah and so there's there's that question of sebastian reconciling those two poles within himself at which of course are those are universal things right to some degree or another but then and then there's charles you know there's always there's the question alongside that that kind of runs parallel with that of whether Charles, you know, what what will cause Charles, if anything, to also be enchanted? Like, what is it that's going to finally capture his imagination? Mm-hmm. Because the reason, as we talked about last week, the reason has not been captured. He's not convinced. But what's going to capture his imagination? Because Sebastian's imagination is captured, and in some ways, it leads to the despair. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, because it kind of rips him in half. Yes. But you yeah, have that image. Yeah. I was just going to say this. This image of Sebastian being torn in two, it's been going through all these chapters. I mean, he's a child of divorce. Right. And his mother right. and his father yep. represent great, yeah. two very different worlds. And, and even his father saying, mm-hmm. you know, that, or it was it Kara who says, you know, he, he sort of hates Sebastian because he's his mother's son. And, 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 and then, you know, you feel the same thing with, with Lady Marchmaine saying, well, I wish I had been able to direct his education, but his fa- of course his father directed his, his education. So, you know, there's a, there's a real sense here in which Sebastian is sort of the battlefield of his parents, plus symbolically they yeah. represent mm-hmm. two very different worlds. You know, um, he's a Catholic like his mother, but he's a drunkard like his father. I mean, all of this tension about who yeah. is he just... Uh, and he's young, and, he, and 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 also you got the whole post-war angst that everybody's going through about what does it mean to be a man mm-hmm. in this new modern world. And mm-hmm. which, of course, we'll talk about in the passage that right, Tim right. brought up. You know, it's it's interesting that he then puts Charles in that same those same shoes in a sense because he pits Charles between himself yes. and his family, and like it's like yeah. Charles is then subsequently being torn as well. Absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, anytime you have juxtapositions or, you and know, the fact like that, that Sebastian wants get, to retreat from the battlefield of his own family by going to Charles's family is also very interesting. Each of mm-hmm. them finds some kind of but solace then, in the cor- other person's family. And of course, Charles's father seems to like Sebastian far more yes. than he likes Charles. He asks after him every time he sees him, is he not coming back? That's too yes. bad. You do whatever right. you want. No, Go Sebastian's on and not a pawn in that relationship, you know, in that dynamic. You kind of, you kind of feel like Charles is a little bit of a pawn in in the Marchmain household. Yeah. What do you guys make of the fact that the father likes having Sebastian around? That Charles's father likes having Sebastian around. Why does he like? Is it just kind of like a, a, a kind of like a relational punishment against Charles? Like I prefer your friend to you. Or is it more complex than that? Maybe he thinks Charles is boring. I mean, I, I mean, don't really mean that as a, I mean that half jokingly, but maybe he kind of just, I don't know. He doesn't get him maybe. in other words. Like, I don't mean boring. Yeah. Like he just thinks he's a boring person. He just doesn't. Well, get yeah, him. I was can't. actually thinking the same thing. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this in the Four Loves, how we are different people around uh, different friends. 
And so maybe Sebastian mm-hmm. being there has brought something out in Charles that just makes the whole thing easier for his dad. Maybe so. I don't know how to read it because I just I don't know how to read Charles's dad. Ugh. Ugh. Man, well, I turned. I, I was kind of roughly tolerant about Charles's dad <laughs> previous to the last couple pages of the chapter. But then uh, on 147 down through 148. You guys mind if I read this really quickly? Yeah. Um, when you're a painter, this is Charles's father speaking in there in Charles's home visiting. When you're a painter, he said suddenly at Sunday luncheon, you'll need a studio. Yes. Well, there isn't a studio here. There isn't even a room you could decently use as a studio. I'm not going to have you painting in the gallery. No, I never meant to. Nor will I have undraped models all over the house, nor critics with their horrible jargon. <laughs> and I don't like the smell of turpentine. I presume you intend to do the thing thoroughly and use oil paint? My father belonged to a generation which divided painters into the serious and the amateur according, to, according as they used oil or water. I don't suppose I should do much for painting the first year. Oh, this is Charles talking. I don't suppose I should do much painting for the first year. Anyway... I should be working at a school. Abroad, asked my father hopefully. There are some excellent schools abroad, I believe. It was all happening rather fast, rather faster than I had intended. Abroad or here, I should have a look around first. Look around abroad, he said. Then you agree to my leaving Oxford? Agree? Agree? My dear boy, you're 22. This is his father speaking. My dear boy, you're 22. 20. I said, 21 in October. Is that all? It seems much longer. I mean, sorry. Like, ugh. You're done, huh? You're done with that guy. I'm done with him. I did not have the same response. He should send him abroad. Wait, wait, Angela, how did you read it? This is a man. I mean, I'm not saying I'm like. I mean, I don't want to look up this guy's profile on eHarmony, okay? Like, don't don't misinterpret my affection <laughs> for the guy, right? I, mean, I don't want him to be my father or anything like that. But I guess I'm I'm I guess I'm seeing him as also another displaced person by this war. He's lost his wife, and mm. and from what I understand, you know, it, it can be very it can be very very difficult knowing how to relate to your child in a situation like that. I mean. Perhaps he feels a lot of the same thing that this is this is your mother's son and it's too painful to be around him. For whatever reason, when Charles and his dad are around each other, it becomes a battlefield. And and so I read this whole thing as one more just like you're intruding on me. I just want to retreat into this fantasy world I live in, where I don't have to deal with my grief or anything that's happened since my wife died. Mm-hmm. That's see, and his not knowing the age of Charles, I think, is just his disconnect. He's just see. Well, uh, Wass says that as he reads the books, time moved in centuries. Oh, what a great line. I've been thinking about that. It's such a good line. Yeah, but, a good so line. this to me just feeds into all of that. He's just in a whole other universe, retreating and escaping. So like he's just a victim of the war. Uh, and, and Charles is also a victim of the war. And I don't know. I guess I guess I'm a little more so- sympathetic because I... I I just feel like Wall is showing us a whole landscape of people whose lives have just been completely messed over. 
This to mm-hmm. me might be one of those instances where there's like the whole conversation about sympathy versus empathy come, might might come up. Um, I don't know, maybe not. But I feel like I can. I, I do have some sympathy for him and what he's going through, but he seems to turn a corner at certain times to where he enters the realm that is just malicious. Yeah. Um, and like even the way he says, you know, he asks, hopefully, you're, you're going abroad, right? He's trying to, he's just, uh-huh. it's not like he's saying, go back to school, go find a job. He's trying yes. to push him as yes, far away absolutely. as he possibly can. Yeah. I mean, he's trying to get him across the ocean. Um, and, you know, <laughs> He he. And then he couches it like, "Oh no, it's your decision," but he really uh-huh. doesn't give him a decision. He's not like you. He's not. You can stay here or you can go. He says you should go. You should go. Those are your options. But definitely, you know, of your one option, you should definitely make the choice yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's really interesting that before he does anything else, Wa then immediately gives us a letter from Lady Marchmain, expressing her um, desire that he do come and that, he, that Charles go come stay with them. So we get those. Those yes, but contrasting I know that you also have two parent. manipulative parents, though. Lady Marchman and Charles's father. They both have what they want, and they both manipulate to get it. Is he manipulating, though? I mean, is he really being manipulative? He's just being a jerk. I, I think playing dumb is a form of manipulation. And so when Charles is saying, I don't have any money, and his dad is All like, right, okay, oh, okay. oh, how'd that happen? Or just don't go to the Jews for a loan. They'll, they'll stiff you. You know, like he's yeah. playing dumb. And that's a way of, everything about him is a way of just not dealing with it. Even the saying, well, it's your choice, my boy. This is just a way of getting the responsibility of making a decision about his son's life off of him. Yeah. But then, so then you read, and then Lady Marchmain, you're saying, let's talk about that a little bit. Her, her being manipulative. Well, it's um, in, okay. There's a different nature but, to it, obviously, because Charles's dad is being manipulative because he just doesn't want his private universe invaded. And and her her motivation right. is she wants to do what what she thinks is right for her son. Right. She's. I, is there a, is there a line between I don't know charm and manipulation because she is be i mean there obviously there is but she is being charming because she wants charles to help sebastian but it also seems like there is a genuine interest in him as when she says that we got to make him a catholic you know like she seems to have taken him on as a pet pet project so to speak beyond her interest in in salvaging i know, think it's sebastian. interesting that wall uses the word charm Okay, because this is also an enchantment. This is, you know, a spell. You put a charm on someone. You put a spell on someone. And, and, and Charles is falling under her spell, but under the spell of all of it. She's just part of it, right? And I don't think that she's... I don't think that she's bad. I don't think she's evil. I, I mean, I don't want a controlling mother making decisions for my life either, but um, I don't think she... And I'm not that kind of mother myself. God forbid, I'm like practically neglectful. I'm so on the opposite end of things. <laughs> I'm all about make your own mistakes, boy. But um, you just I, said I, that I publicly, say it all so. the time, all the time. I can't, I've been giving my kids this talk since they were so little because I had a super controlling mother and I saw what it did to all of her children and I just made a decision very early on I was never going to be that woman. So I've always told my kids, if you grow up and tell the therapist my mother neglected me and she didn't love me, just know that you know it was good intentions. <laughs> Just, just trying not to be controlling. I, I did, did it on purpose. On purpose. So. <laughs> totally. Um, but uh, no, they're they're fine. <laughs> but, but I so you know, 
she's a complicated character. And I think I think that she does put people under her spell. So I don't think it's like deliberately manipulative. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't know that it necessarily has to be a contrast between genuinely caring about Charles and also seeing an opportunity to use her influence via Charles over her son. Like in her mind, that would all be the same thing. Right. It's all going toward right. the we common both good. Love Seba- we both love Sebastian Charles. I love you. I love him. We both love him. So let's work together. Yeah. Let's work together. Yeah. Hey, Angelina. <laughs> I just had a telegraph come in from a space. Telegraph. Oh, um, my gosh. How's yeah. Graham? Well, he sent I've a note. I, I think he's been doing some soul searching while he's been up there in the vortex because he sent a oh, note wow. here. And I, I feel like you definitely will want to hear this one. Um, so you're just going to have to give me a second. No laughing. This is a serious matter, Angelina. Come on, Angelina. He, okay, it's a little longer than usual. He says, <laughs> being overcome. Guys, come on. I'm sorry, David. No, it's, I blame Angelina. Get in line. You got to take Graham's soul searching here with, seriously. Yeah. Being overcome with guilt and remorse, he writes, I feel as though I must make a public apology to Angelina. I should not have insulted her so regularly or voraciously over the past two months. No matter how clever the jabs were, it was wrong for me to insinuate her voice was louder than a jackhammer, stronger than an anesthetic, and could be heard from space. I am also terribly sorry for all the scenarios I imagined involving Angelina's robust, shrill, glass-shattering voice being able to crumble pyramids, resist event horizons, and transcend space and time. I'm just so, so, so sorry. Yours, Graham Pittman. Wow! But, there's a a postscript here. But if she could be a tiny bit quieter, maybe I could get some work done. I feel like Lady Marchmain may have just met her match. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you guys mind that I piped in some okay, I a thought, little bit of I thought, was, I thought I was hearing things I'm like where is this coming from I'm just spinning tunes over there well okay. D- DJ Tim DJ Tim, 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 Tim mixing Tim it up Mac right here <laughs> well okay obviously being the magnanimous person that I am uh, I forgive you Graham <laughs> Oh, I do, I do. And let's all just work together on this little problem we have. <laughs> well done, Lady Marchmaid. Which, by the way, clo- our close readers, listeners don't know this, but when we all signed into Zencaster today, you know, we each choose our own kind of like Zencaster handle. And today, Angelina signed in as Lady Marchmaid. I was just feeling like I wanted to sit She's you down for role. tea and give you a book. Like an imp- improving book. Well, Tim, yes. would you like to tell yeah, everyone really. what your name is? At least I classed it up. <laughs> I don't know that that's... I don't think it's, it's pertinent so right now, David. It's because you missed a DJ. <laughs> oh, that is a great point. My Zencaster handle today is Boom Shakalaka. <laughs> Keeping it classy as I don't get the... I don't get the pleasure of coming up with these names because I set the thing up and so it just automatically goes with the account name. So it just says Thirsty Institute. <laughs> um, but maybe I'll set it up and then come in as a guest also at some point. Just so oh, yeah, maybe you should. So we can be totally confused about who's saying well, what. <laughs> um, do you think... Let's get back to Lady Marchman here because you talked about her as an enchantress um, casting her spell. Do you think that her children are under her spell because it does seem like a lot of people 
come in contact with her ha- are enchanted and then you know th- eventually they're not <laughs> think of her husband for example and i and i think we may be uh being a little harsh with her because there's a you know as you said there's a very complicated character there and we'll get to that over the course of the book but do you see her children like how do you see her relationship with her children is is it are they enchanted as well or are they cynical about her or how do you read that I think that they are and I think Sebastian is resisting it and this is and he knows her power that's part of why he doesn't want to bring Charles around I think he has very conflicted feelings about her um, but the way that she is described she's described as the kind of woman who just attracts a lot of people to her right he, she's got all these hangers on mm-hmm. as Sebastian called yeah she's she got does a force and, field. And, um, this is, a, but this is a character that you meet elsewhere. I'm thinking so much about Mrs. Dalloway from uh, Virginia Woolf. If you've read that, um, Virginia Woolf describes women like this. Um, I've been having a lot of echoes of that as as we've read these these women who just have, and it's not evil. Okay, it's just it's just a way they have of uh, putting people at ease and and making people feel comfortable and just sort of having this charm about them that draws people to them and. I think part of Sebastian's problem is how conflicted he feels about all of it. He he does love her. Mm-hmm. They don't have a bad relationship, but I think he's trying to get sorted about what exactly it is he's supposed to feel about her. Especially when you've got the divorce thrown into the mix. It's not, not even just a normal coming of age, I'm growing up and what do I think of my parents? He's got, you know, a dad saying a lot of negative things and, and making a battle out of it. And it's it's interesting that the this real pivotal moment that happens in this chapter is Charles, excuse me, Sebastian getting drunk in front of his mother. Yes. It, because that's what happened with her husband. Um, it seems like Sebastian is probably, at least subconsciously, um, he's he's being deliberate about being drunk in front of her, and. I, I just have so much sympathy. So it's like for a faux apology, you mean? Like he, when he comes down to apologize, he's just doing that so he can come down. Well, and don't you think he's? Yes, don't you think he's coming he down to make perform. a point of it's only Charles I'm apologizing to, not the rest of you? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah that's oh, right. Yeah. He, this, not, yeah. he basically is like not you. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So he gives a total non-apology on purpose. He's he's rubbing their nose in it. Yeah. I'm not upset. Yeah, at I think he's how I've treated the rest of you, just Charles. That's a very child thing to do. Uh (laughs) It is. And it furthers the warfare between he and his family over the kind of like neutral territory of Charles. Well, no one's going to let him stay neutral. That's the whole problem, right? Everybody wants him to pick a side. Right. You know, I wonder if you guys, if you guys, if now is the... uh, Good time to read this passage that um, we were all kind of gravitating towards that begins with 138. So it seems to me like it's a real pivotal moment. It happens after the kind of drunken bout uh, between Sebastian and his family at Brideshead. And Lady Marchmain has now given Charles a book. And it's almost like the book is almost like a um, diary slash biography of the Marchmain household. Um, and it's very, well, I'll just read the passage. I, for me, this is the first moment where I see Charles not just showing curiosity about Catholicism, but actually taking a step toward it. And I wonder if you guys 
read it the same way. I'll just start. It's a long, it's a long section. Um, do you guys want to break it up? Where are you starting? Where do you want to start? Where, uh, where are you starting? First full paragraph. No, sorry. Um, last full paragraph on 138. It begins in the train to London. I read oh, the book. Oh, we do all mm-hmm. have the same mm-hmm. page numbers then. Okay. Yeah, I think we do. And I'm going to read to the um, end of that right. break. And that on is a lot. Okay, go ahead. In the train to London, I read the book Lady Marchmain had given me. The frontispiece reproduced the photograph of a young man in a grenadier uniform, and I saw plainly revealed there the origin of that grim mask which, in Bride's Head, overlaid the gracious features of his father's family. This was a man of the woods and caves, a hunter, a judge of the tribal council, the repository of the harsh traditions of a people at war with their environment. Such a great line to describe the relationship of Catholicism to England. Um, a repository of the harsh traditions of a people at war with their environment. There were other illustrations in the book, snapshots of the three brothers on holiday, and each and in each I traced the same archaic lines. And, remembering Lady Marchmain, starry and delicate, I could find no likeness to her in these somber men. I like the way that archaic lines in each I trace these same archaic lines. That's like one of those loaded... Well, he comes back so to that idea, too, yeah. right? That they're archaic, old, passed away. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But she, the idea yes. that like, the lines of a face and oh, family yeah. lines, right. just yeah, all, yeah. That, all those right. different ideas that come together there. She appeared seldom in the book. She was older than the eldest of them by nine years and had married and left home while they were schoolboys. Between her and them stood two other sisters. After the birth of the third daughter, they had been in pilgrimages and pious benefactions and request, request for a son. For theirs was a wide property and an ancient name. Male heirs had come late and, when they came, in a profusion which at the same time seemed to promise continuity to the line, which, in the tragic event, ended abruptly with them. The family history was typical of the Catholic squires of England, from Elizabeth's reign till Victoria's. They lived sequestered lives among the tenantry and kinsmen, sending their sons to school abroad, often marrying there, intermarrying, if not, with a score of families like themselves, debarred from all preferment, and learning in those lost generations lessons which could still be read in the lives of the last three men of the house. Angelina, this just ties so perfectly into what you said in the last podcast about the kind of like the history of Catholicism in Anglican England you know, mm-hmm. in the last two centuries. Mr. It's interesting Sam- that he actually drops the words sure "lost does. generation" there. I don't know if they were. Cl- I don't know if they were called that then. I can't remember when that phrase was coined. About that the phrase post- was coined, David, by um, Gertrude Stein, and it's oh, that's right, of course. In the, yeah, in that. What do you call it? The um, it's a quote at the beginning of. The sun also rises. Yeah, that's right. Of course. We're all a lost generation. So that would have been roughly... Contemporaneous, right? I think he's referring to the years between Elizabeth and Victoria as the lost generations. Well, he he is there, but just just even that phrase being there is is evocative. (laughs) Yeah. Haunting, too, I'd say. <laughs> Mr. Sam Grass's deft editorship had assembled and arranged a curiously homogenous little body of writing. Poetry, letters, scraps of a journal, 
an unpublished essay or two, which all exhaled the same high-spirited, serious, chivalrous, otherworldly air. Otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the letters from their contemporaries written after their deaths, all in varying degrees of articulateness, told the same tale of men who were, in all of the full flood of academic and athletic success, of popularity and the promise of great rewards ahead, seen somehow as set apart from their fellows, garlanded victims, devoted to the sacrifice. These men must die to make a world for Hooper. They were the aborigines, vermin by right of law, to be shot off at leisure so that things might be safe for the traveling salesman with his poly... Oh, gosh. Polygonal, pince-nez, his fat, <laughs> his fat, wet handshake, his grinning dentures. I wondered, as the train carried me farther and farther from Lady Marchmain, whether perhaps there were not, on her, too, the same blaze, marking her and hers for destruction by other ways than war. Did she see a light in the red center of her cost, cozy grate and hear it in the rattle of creeper on the window pane, this whisper of doom? Then I reached Paddington and, returning home, found Sebastian there, and the sense of tragedy vanished, for he was gay and free as when I first met him. Cordelia sent you her special Cordelia sent you her special love. Did you have a little talk with Mummy? Yes. Have you gone over to the other side? The day before I would have said there aren't two sides. That day I said no, I'm with you, Sebastian, contra mundum. And that was all the conversation we'd had on the subject, then or ever. Oh, this passage is <laughs> so good. Those, it's interesting that it ends with the idea of the two sides again, right? And like having to choose between them. And the idea, the question of whether there are two sides, and for at least that moment he decides there are two sides. And I'm picking Sebastian, but... Another time he might have chosen yes, somebody else. Yes, but see, to, to come right after this passage puts a different spin on the two sides because the two sides in the, in, in the whole thing is the old right, way and right. the new way, right? And the old way right. is, mm-hmm. is dead. It's passed away. It's lost. And the new way is Hooper. And we know from the beginning of the story that that, that is something to be mourned, right? So is are we meant to then believe like is he choosing in sebastian when he makes this choice so obviously we're getting this equation or these two sides at any rate set set up here as you just described but in choosing sebastian is he meant to have chosen the new way oh or is do you think or is that am i just reading too much i don't i I don't know that that's where charles is in his head but he but he's but he's asking the question is lady marchman and that whole world part of that old world that has passed away um, mm-hmm. And that's part of Sebastian's struggle, of course, is who is he in, in the light of all of yeah. this? And and I'm just going to mm-hmm. derail for just a second because I had such a strong moment when I read this and just a real epiphany um, because mm-hmm. what Waugh is describing here, the old world passing away and the new man that is emerging out of this, this post-war world and that being a, a, a point of grief and sorrow – this is exactly what Margaret Mitchell is mm-hmm. saying in Gone with the Wind. And what struck me, though, is that she's uh, writing, and I never thought about this before, mm-hmm. she's writing Gone with the Wind in between the two world wars. 
So what she does is she takes hmm. oh, all of the yeah. same angst that she sees with Wall, right? That the world has changed and the old has passed away and who is the new man? And she, but she, she imposes it on the Civil War South. And so she tells that same story of a lost generation, but she tells it through the Civil War. And so what you have is the old wow. world, which is exactly the way Wall describes it at the beginning, right? Chivalry and poetry and men who cry at Thermopylae and, you know, Men of honor and virtue, right? And, and listen, I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is separate from the question of whether or not the South really was like that, okay? But just for the terms of the book, the world that she is creating, right. a world of virtue yeah, and right. honor and nobility and chivalry and goodness is represented in, in Melanie and Ashley. And what ends up happening in the book, of course, is that the world changes after the war and there is no place for those people anymore. And just like Wad describes, they right. have to pass away for the new man to come forward. And the new man is Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara. But the thing about the book, and in this, I, I mean, I'm just so shocked right now how much Margaret Mitchell is tracking with Wall. Margaret Mitchell is extremely ambivalent about Scarlett O'Hara. Part of what happens in the book is you can't figure out as a reader, do I like her or not? And it's because Margaret Mitchell can't figure out mm. if she likes her or not. Because ultimately the book raises the question, if that old world has passed away, if you have to be Scarlett O'Hara to survive in the new world, and you do, then what's the point? Maybe that's not such a good thing to be. Maybe that's just, yeah. we should all just mourn that the world has turned us into Scarlett O'Hara. And I feel like Wall's doing the same thing here with those men had to die to make the world for Hooper. Well, then yeah. this is what Hemingway's doing in The Sun Also Rises with Lady Brett Ashley, and it's what Fitzgerald's doing in The Great Gatsby with, mm -hmm. um, with uh, what is the, what, who's the, the name, what's the name of the, the female character that, that Gatsby's in love oh, with? Oh, right. Daisy? Oh. Daisy, Daisy Buchanan. Uh, it's the same thing with them. I mean, it's the same thing with Gatsby too. Like, if you have to, if you have to serve, if the only way to survive or to get ahead or let's just say survive is to be those characters, then what's the point? It's the exact same question that's being yes, asked. In yes, yes. And those see, books. I never before this moment would all have of the same put time. Gone with the Wind in that same category. But I see now that she's taking all of that lost generation angst and just putting it in the Civil War setting. That's a great observation, Angeline. I'd have never seen that. I, I don't know Gone with the Wind clearly as well as you do, but that's just a would, great overlay. Would you say, Angelina, that that sense of enchantment is there with, with uh, Scarlett O'Hara? With that world, yes. But with that, I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, the idea oh, of these Oh, does Scarlett O'Hara have the ability because, to enchant you know, people? Yes. Yes. Because you get the same thing. I mean, these other books I just mentioned, Gatsby and Daisy Buchanan are incredibly yes. enchanting, yeah. especially to Nick Carraway. And, in, and, and Lady Look, Brett Ashley is incredibly line, enchanting the opening line to of the Gone main with character. The, wind. In, the opening in line of Gone with the Wind is, Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful, but men seldom noticed when in her presence. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great opening line. Well, you know, I mean, I think we may be, you know, overlooking the fact that almost every great character in a book is in some way enchanting. Like, that's just the nature of the best characters, whether mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're even evil characters who ha there's something enchanting about them that make them, you know, a good character. Um, Anna Karenina. But, like, right. oh, yes, yes. so. Yeah, she's a classic example for fantastically sure. Fantastically charming. I mean, maybe not Raskolnikov. He's not very enchanting. But, um, but, uh, what was I going to say? There's something there's about some, 
there's something about those characters and the relationship with the world that they live in that make these characters, um, like that make that enchantment a little harrowing, like like more just haunting maybe. Say more about that, David. There's something about this world that makes those characters more harrowing. Well, I guess maybe that their enchantment, the sense that they, the reason is that they that they are so enchanting. I think like the reason that Jay Gatsby is enchanting for Nick Carraway and for and and like the legend of Jay Gatsby is enchanting has so much to do with the world that he has well, there's kind of risen up into. Than life that yeah. all of those characters. World. Right. Well, and even Lady Brett Ashley in um, The Sun Also Rises. Um, yes. Oh, she's I think that's thoroughly her name. charming. That's her name. Um, yeah, and she she's thoroughly charming, but in a way that is like so. Um, it's it's driven by it's that that enchantment and her persona are born out of the world that she lives in and the experiences yep. that she's had because of the way the world is. It's the same thing. You know, you get it, and you know if you if you read a story of the '60s, a character, these characters are are created out of the turmoil of the late 60s, say. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's an mm-hmm. enchantment about their their ability to survive in that world. And so we look at them and we say, you know, if, if there's a... Like, Nick Carraway's trying to survive in The Great Gatsby. And so he looks at Jay Gatsby, and he sees Jay Gatsby surviving and even thriving, in a sense. And yes. he's... Like, there's a lot that's, that, that is haunting Jay Gatsby. But his ability to survive and thrive is enchanting to Nick Carraway, and so he, he follows him, Right. Right. He, you know, he, he he follows him until he can't anymore, basically, until he sees the flaws. Um, and, you know, like in The Sun Also Rises, the main character whose name is for, I'm forgetting right now, he can't Jake. stop thinking. Of, yeah, he can't stop thinking about Brett Ashley, Lady Brett uh-huh. Ashley. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, when someone when you're living in a time of turmoil and people have this magnetism about them that can enchant you that makes them stand apart. I think, you know, it there that makes them very attractive because there's a sense that in in the midst of all this turmoil in the midst of all this chaos, I can survive, right? And it's what leads Charles to Sebastian at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then the question and then it leads him on to all these other characters. And the question is it's almost like who does Sebastian have Sebastian's yeah, enchanting to Charles. Say, but who does Sebastian have enchanting. to look at that is enchanting to him? Who can Sebastian follow? Because there doesn't seem like anybody who's who who's bright who like whose lights are bright enough to call, to for for Sebastian That's to very say. True. I want to be like That's that. That's very person. true. That's part of yes. why he's wandering yeah. around, right? His father could and should be the person who models for him what it means to be a man in the world, and isn't there. He has this respect for his older brother, but like that relationship seems, you know, frayed, strained. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, he keeps getting, you know, his mother's right, trying to find that person for him, right? Like, there's the, there's the priest, then there's the, um, the mm-hmm. tutor, and the, who's, the, who's, who's he going to get sent away to if he, after that, oh, after yeah. the, the term. bell? Yeah, yeah. So it seems like they're just rushing one person after another to try to, you know, to try to give him someone to follow and imitate and be, be, uh. Right. I don't know. Changed by. He molded like, by. You know, yes. Right. You send, you send oh, your troubled kids the, to someone to be changed by. This is the thing about by, Sebastian, right? right? Like, it, there's no one. So it's not that he's gotten in with the wrong crowd and has rejected his family. There's no one for him to follow. He doesn't. So the the foil to that would be Rex, 
But right. Sebastian is not enchanted by Rex. Mm-hmm. I love the description of Rex as efficient. He knows you know, better. he's the modern man. He he's efficient. Yeah. He gets things. Mm-hmm. He see. Mm-hmm. The, so they get into this. Exactly. He's exactly. From North America, and, and, by the way. and I don't think that that is uh, accidental at all, right? He's the new man, and so Sebastian yeah. and Charles get into yeah. trouble, and they are so in over their heads, and they don't know how to navigate this new world. And Rex just knows. He's just one of those guys who knows how to navigate the world, but he's Rex. He's not enchanting. He he's Hooper. This is sad that this is the new man of the world, but it's also true that Sebastian cannot yeah. function. <laughs> But there's something enchanting about him to yes, Julia. but that's puzzling to me. <laughs> that is. That well, would right. be, we, haven't gotten, right. we haven't gotten far. You have to keep reading that. But. That would be a really fun relationship to explore. Like, Well, she's not going to be without work? daddy issues, too, of course. Well, I, I was literally just going to say there's a daddy issue thing going yeah. on there. And, like, a man who can, like, who's buttoned up, can, can kind of take care of things, who's not, who can, like, solve... Yeah. The problems of drunkards, yes, whereas yes. her father yep. was the drunkard. You know, all those things are going to sort of come together. So, if the old man failed her, if the old context, the old world failed her, then naturally uh, yes, she's going to look for the new world. Mm-hmm. And so she turns to Rex. I, I think this. I mean, I'm so glad, Angelina, that you brought up the kind of like overlay with Gone with the Wind. It makes me think. Also, we talked about Walker Percy, uh, David Nyard. Or Walker Percy fans, I can't remember. I've read a whole lot of Walker Percy. Um, But it's a similar. He's dealing with very similar issues, and there's the death of this old way, and it's happening kind of later because it's the American South that it's happening in. But there's this death of this old way, and this old way of being a man. And for Walker Percy. I mean, it was, he's writing novels to solve a highly personal issue. So Walker Percy, a Catholic living in the South in the middle part of the 20th century, and Walker Percy's grandfather and father were both highly esteemed, I think they were both lawyers, very esteemed in their communities, classic Southern gentlemen. Not only just classic Southern gentlemen, but they were classic Southern gentlemen that fought on behalf of African Americans during kind of like proto and civil rights movements. And both of them committed suicide. And for Walker Percy, he his novels are almost an exploration of figuring out why did my father and grandfather commit suicide? And am I going to fall prey to the same thing that claimed them? He's always wrestling in his books with suicide, suicidal thoughts. And his, what he kind of discovers is that what has killed, what he believes has killed his father and grandfather is that this old pattern of life had died away and these two men were trying to retain those old practices but those old practices could not be maintained in solitary confinement, as it were. They could only be practiced when they were part of, kind of like a broader community practice. And so for, for Percy, when he starts reading Soren Kierkegaard and Jean-Paul Sartre and Dostoevsky on, in a hospital bed, he sees this kind of Christian existentialism as the way that he will not end up committing suicide like his father and grandfather. 
But it's it's this funny thing because he esteems this old way of being that he saw in his father and grandfather, yet at the same time recognizing that world is disintegrating rapidly and now I have to make new choices. I've got to figure this out. In in Percy and I think in a lot of the the fiction that we've been referencing this the, between the world wars um it, it seems like a lot of these i the, it seems like the idea of clinging to the old way of life is in itself a sort of suicidal act like if mm. you cling to it too hard you can't you can't survive and thrive yes you have yes. to like look at it and you have to like recognize the, what value is there because and, and then cling to that bits but then be yes. willing to let go of the parts that are not you can't just because something is old doesn't mean that it's inherently worth clinging to yeah um, and it seems like you know you get that in um, in uh, in Gatsby in particular and in Hemingway I mean Hemingway there's right, another guy right. who committed suicide but if we just yeah. if we, if we fast forward the conversation yeah, yeah, like, to the present day then it's fascinating how all of these ideas have played mm-hmm. out right so we're describing all these writers in different parts of the world different genders um, you know whole nine yards all seeing the same thing mm-hmm. right that the old way is passing away that the, and, and the people mm-hmm. who are clinging to that are going to pass away with it because there's no room in the new world for that and yet they're all mourning that they're all mourning the death of that and so here we are 2017 just right. standing in the wreckage of that right the old way has passed away and we have come to discover as a culture i mean not everybody perhaps but a large part of the culture has realized the modern man this is an untenable situation right it might have it might have kept us alive during the post-war years but look look at the mess and so it's fascinating to me as a culture that we are we are looking back to the old ways i mean the whole classical education resurgence is evidence of that right of people saying enough with the modern we lost something good when the old world passed away, and we're all and we're mm-hmm. all we're all doing exactly what you're describing, Dave. We're all trying to figure out. I mean, we're not going to be ancient Greeks, right? I mean, I'm not giving up my air conditioning. I'm not being a medieval, but mm-hmm. but what goodness was <laughs> lost, and how do we carry right. that over, and how do we apply yeah. it in the world that we're living in? But just this intense sense that something good has passed away. And we've got to recover it. I feel like that's where we are in the conversation mm. now. I think Wendell Berry speaks to a lot of that. And um, I agree. You know what we're doing here right now speaks to that. The fact that people want to talk about literature. I, I am amazed. Look, I mean, I've told this story before, but I was in graduate school, and I, the 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 graduate English students would not read the books. <laughs> and it's just amazing to me that there are people who are like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm picking up this book, and you know, doggone it, I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrestle with this. It's just it's just fascinating to me. Huh. And encouraging, deeply, deeply encouraging. You know, uh, in this passage that Tim just read, Charles refers to the, all the stuff that he's talking about as a whisper of doom. Yes. And he wonders if Lady Marchmain sees it, right? Yeah. And, you know, speaking of haunting, <laughs> a whisper of doom is about as haunting as it gets. Yeah. Um, and it, that, that seems like you know, that's towards the end of this chapter. And it seems like oh, that's yeah, going to yeah, set yeah. up the rest of our our reading. We've got all these relationships. And the reason I wanted to bring up the characters is is because as these, as we've been have we kind of have all our main characters now. And so these relationships are going to be kind of, they're going to be unfolding and they're going to be flowering and growing and changing. And um, people are going to continue to grow up and get older. Everybody from Sebastian and Charles to, to Cordelia, the youngest sister. Um, and all, you know, hovering over all of that is this, this question of this whisper of doom. 
Um, and so I think that might be, you know, we've been going over an hour and 20 minutes, so that might be a good place to stop with just kind of this idea that this whisper of doom is hovering over everything. Yeah. It's where where is Sebastian happen? as we move into chapter six, uh, which we'll talk about next. Any final thoughts before we, before we conclude here? These last two podcasts for me have been among the most enjoyable. I was going to say something similar. I really, really enjoy what we're unpacking here. These are, these are aesthetics and, and the changing world after the war is deep, deeply uh, fascinating and important issues in my mind. So, so glad that we're able to talk about them, but you know, you, you made the point, David, about the, you know, the archaic line and all the double meanings of that. And that's the more we've talked, the more that I've thought about that, you know, because the brothers, right. It was literally the end of the line. When they died, the line was dead. So all the right, implications right, yeah, yeah. of that, you know, everything that they represent died with them. And Lady Marchmain is part of that world. And will she survive? Can, can she survive? Yes. Yeah. And it's not like the there was three, one son, yes. right? It was one son of the child of one son. You know, there were three... And how many families yes. did that happen and the, to? And the way that he set it up with there was this fear that there would be no male heir, and then they had three, and surely this has secured the line. Because historically, you know, you have the heir and the spare. So they had an heir and two spares. They were set. But what they couldn't anticipate was World War One, And so, I mean, it just... All the meaning there, yeah. all the meaning yeah, the, there the for universe, how the, disruptive that was to everything that people took comfort in, for everything that gave them stability. An heir, a spare, and a spare. That was your stability for the line. Boom, gone. Yeah. Right. Well, Great stuff, I'm, you guys. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is what's going to happen. We actually are going to be taking... For us, it's going to be a week off. For those of you who are listening, it's hopefully only going to be about 10 days. Uh, we're going to push. We posted this week's episode on a Wednesday. It really ended up, we had some problems with the file, so it ended up being Thursday. But we're going to post this this next episode probably on Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. So it'll be a day or so behind by the time you've listened to this. And then we're going to take that week off. And so then we'll come back the next week and record. So you'll, there might be about 10 days between episodes for you. Um, but we need to, between the Summer Institute and graduation that Tim's doing at uh, Gutenberg and the many, many projects I'm working on right now, we just need, we need a few days to kind of catch up. And are um, you getting the impression, David, that our listeners are kind of wanting a little time to catch up also? I don't know. It sounds like they'd be okay if we recorded every day. <laughs> the truth is we could. We could probably go sentence by sentence through a book. And <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. we could. Micro we might lose all of our listeners, but we could definitely do well, it. Right. It, it is called Close Reads, right? Um, well, yeah, thank you to everyone who's been listening and commenting and uh, sending in, you know, Facebook messages and emails and, and all that. Thank you for subscribing. If you haven't done so yet, we would appreciate it if you would um, on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. We, of course, do have the, the general Cersei feed. We can get all of our shows, or you can just subscribe to the Close Reads feed. Uh, don't forget about Tim's classes with, with uh, the Scola, uh, Scola Academy with Classical Academic Press. If you want to learn more about that, he- head over to scolaacademy.com. That's S-C-H-O-L-E academy.com. And I think, you're, I think your mug shot's there on the front page, Tim, with, with all I your classes. I think it is. So, yeah. so you can check that out there. And of course, thanks to IEW for sponsoring the podcast this this month, and they actually sponsored a seat at our oh, nice. summer institute, uh, uh, which is coming up. They sponsored a seat for wow. a couple. Um, cool. So 
yeah, so I, that was for oh, a close yeah. read, close reads listener. So that's where that, that that scholarship came in. So thanks to them, thanks to them for making that happen. Yeah, we got <laughs> that was. You know, I'm never doing that again because that's, that's it. Kind of makes me feel bad because we get all these. We get all these great submissions, and then I have to choose one, and then there's yeah. all these people who I have to say sorry to, just and then Graham I just do feel it. terrible. He has no problem so, being the bad guy. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. But then he, gets, then he just jets off into space us. and doesn't have to deal with it. And really, yeah. let me just say, we're here at the end, put in my <sighs> plug. This is going to be my third time going to the literary retreat, and if you guys ever get a chance, you absolutely should go. It's a fantastic week of uh closely reading a book and and just being with like-minded people it's a it's a fantastic week yeah, people were saying you know we want a close reads conference which i'm all for if we can make it happen if you know if the numbers are there and we can we can financially make it work but the funny thing is we're all in the <laughs> office we're like guys we do this already this is called the Cersei summer institute we spend a whole week reading a oh book yeah in the mountains with really good food for five days i mean i don't know it's pretty much what we already do so yeah. you know feel free to join us for that i i don't know exactly what we're going to do next year which book we've been doing the uh the the epic poems but there's Ooh. talk of a of a possible shakespeare week so um one of these years we'll probably do hamlet um vaguely vaguely yeah it's, yeah yeah He's I, don't know. I heard it's not very good um anyway yeah <laughs> So, uh, yeah, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Um, for Tim McIntosh and Angelina Stanford and for Spaced Graham, who's out. still in space somewhere, apologizing for things. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. But, uh, f- yeah, for everyone here at Cersei, uh, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network, and we'll talk to you next time. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.